Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. Bring us together in large groups, put money on the line, and anything could happen. This is a show where current and aspiring business leaders can understand the people dynamics at play in their organizations and learn skills and techniques to improve their chances of long-term business success. This week, I'm joined by Dr. Victoria Mattingly, who is an organizational psychologist passionate about improving the human experience at work. She is CEO and founder of Mattingly Solutions an HR management consulting firm that measures workplace inclusion and trains majority group members to create a better workplace culture that everyone can thrive in. Their workplace interventions are designed to improve the human experience by fostering workplace inclusion, improving emotional intelligence, and improving worker well-being. Mattingly Solutions uses organizational science and evidence-based best practices to help people learn, grow, and connect across differences at work. The timing of this interview was serendipitous. Uh, we had scheduled it prior to the events of Memorial Day weekend, uh, namely the killing of George Floyd by the Minneapolis Police Department. And prior to some of the other revelations that came out, uh, there was an incident with the gentleman, Christian Cooper, who was birdwatching in New York and had the police called on him. Uh, there was another incident that had come forward with Ahmad Arbery being chased down and shot in the streets and with Brianna Taylor being killed in her own home by police officers who had entered the wrong building. So we had a lot of that context as we got into this conversation, talking about diversity and inclusion and allyship, but we hadn't yet seen the reaction that came only the next day, even after recording this with the start of protests and a lot of the, the rioting and looting that went on around the country. And so as this national discourse has really evolved, the timing of this conversation, talking about these uh, very important topics, is just only more important and more relevant right now. And, and I'm grateful that we had the conversation because it actually really opened my eyes in a lot of ways and framed how I was able to listen and learn and think about and frame up a lot of what happened over those coming days and weeks. And so I'm really excited to share this with you today, uh, whether you're listening to it right now uh, in the midst of what's going on or whether you listen to this in the future, I think you get a lot out of this and how we create not only a better workplace, but a better world where everybody has the opportunity to chase their dreams and live their best life and be treated equally. So without further ado, I, I really hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Victoria Mattingly. Live in three, two, one, and we are live. Victoria, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me, O'Brien. Yeah, thank you for coming on. So you have your PhD in organizational psychology, is that correct? Yes. Familiar with psychology, familiar even with behavioral psychology. What is organizational psychology? So... 
that is such a common question. I feel like I'm always like I didn't I graduated with my undergrad in psychology and I did not know much about uh, industrial organizational psychology is the full field. It's awful. It's awful branding. No profession should be 10 syllables length. Uh, so I dropped the industrial part. Organizational psychology is you know, using science to help improve the human experience at work. So it's, it's a lot of the same topics that you would learn about in business school, particularly the management, leadership, people, people talent side of things, HR for sure. But instead of coming at it from only a bottom line perspective and only a business perspective, also how do we, you know, maximize our, our, our human potential at work and, and make sure we're matching the right people to the right jobs and we're giving leaders the right tools to motivate and, you know, and, and lead their teams and we're giving people the tools to um, also like well-being and how to, you know, take care of themselves, take care of each other because we know companies that have good cultures, which is at the end of the day, the people are better companies and are going to have those bottom line effects, but really doubling down on the people aspect. So I didn't even know, as I said, about psychology. And then I was um, bartending uh, during 2008, right after I graduated um, during our not our, our previous recession, right? And I have so much empathy for current graduates of 2020 because I was, you know, there you know, it wasn't a pandemic, but it was a recession for sure. And, uh, you know, having to use my bartending degree after working my butt off getting an actual degree and it's like, well, I'm going to work at the fanciest restaurant and make all the money if I can't get like a nine to five right now. And then two organizational psychologists walk into my bar and tell me what they're in town doing. And I'm like, let me get this straight. Like you're getting paid good money, right? To essentially make the lives of the employees better. You know, they're working at a hospital. How has hospitals worried about losing their nurses and doctors to the fancy new hospital opening up down the street? And so they brought in these organizational psychologists to figure out what would keep you here, what would make you want to stay, what would, what would make you feel committed, even though there's a shiny new place opening up that could, you know, maybe even pay you better. You know, what, what could we do to keep you here? And I, I just love that. You know, how can we really put our money where our mouth is as, as businesses and invest in our and our people and, and get those dividends as a result. So yeah, very long-winded answer, but that's 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 what I do. And so yeah, I was sold when I when I met those those organizational psychologists and I always knew I wanted to get my like an advanced degree in psychology. I thought I'd be doing more of the the therapy route, um, but I learned pretty quickly I don't think I'd have a hard time not taking that home with me, you know, that to take take sure, a certain yeah. resilience to, yeah. to do that line of work and you know and I I I wanted, I like the idea of having a broad impact. Maybe it's not as deep as what that type of transformational um, results you can get from therapy. But I, if I can make people's lives that work just a little better, you know, like just a little bit and spending so many waking hours of working, like that would be that that's the type of impact I'd be excited to you know, look back and, and feel like I had a good career. You're doing organizational therapy. I would be. I wouldn't say because I always. I always get when I come in, you know, or I'm explaining what I do. Like, oh, are you psychoanalyzing me right now? Or like, oh, do people like come and sit on your couch? It's like, no, 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 no. I'm. I'm looking at it at, you know, what's the cultural level, or what's, you know, what what makes us better, you know, communicators. What makes us better leaders? What what makes these day to day human interactions? How do we how do we improve those? Like that's that's more my my jam. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I love, I just shout out to your story too. Cause I, I love 
people who are successful and have launched these careers that are, are fulfilling totally off of serendipity. Uh, and I, I've been working at Lockton now for 11 years, it'll be 11 years uh, this July. And it stemmed from me happening to realize that this company that I was calling on in a totally separate industry, that uh, one of the executives was somebody that I grew up with as like a family friend. And he, I thought I had this great introduction and I thought that this was like this end of this deal. And it turns out he totally shot the meeting down and it was like a total buzzkill. I had to go in and tell my boss that my great connection didn't pan out. But uh, nine months later, he wound up hiring me into Lockton. And, uh, you know, it's been a, a great ride since then. So I, I love those like serendipitous, pivotal moments in your life uh, that you like, you never know, you never know where they're going to come in. But if you just like work hard enough and are open enough, like your life will pivot in big ways at some point. So I love that. Has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about, but I, uh, I no, love it's that. still it's still great though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so my understanding now is that really you've taken this. You you have your own consulting firm, and most of what you do, if not all of what you do, is focused around diversity and inclusion. Is that is that right or is that wrong? Yes. So I'm definitely you know starting with you know not not even just diversity inclusion probably even though it's all important pieces of, of the puzzle you know and um but really focusing on inclusive behaviors so what i found you know and i you know, i started off and i think a lot of business people who, who start from okay i'm a consultant and i do this type of work and then how do i then turn this work i do into a business right and and my training i have a lot i i you know i do learning and development that's really what i've focused on um, for the bulk of my my PhD program, it really wasn't until I got to the dissertation phase where, because I was I was always very interested in how do you how can we train the workforce to be more emotionally intelligent? Like how can we give people? And, and this also goes back to my restaurant days where, you know, we had training and and we have a direct a director of training in like the corp like the restaurant corporation I worked for, and I learned the POS system and I learned the menu. And, and I learned, you know, the, the steps of service, but never once. And I worked in restaurants for 14 years. You know, never once did I get training on how do you deal when you just have that awful person at that table who's just berating you? How do you deal with bad bosses and just like crazy coworkers and, and, and intoxicated customers? I mean, these are very high stress situations. And I, I've read some research that they measured stress and 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 high volume restaurant work is more stressful at times than, than a surgery, than, than ER work, you know, which is bonkers to think about. And there's, yeah. ne we're never given any sort of emotional tools of how to deal with these stressful situations or even just how to be an effective server, right? Like if you let that one bad table ruin your night, then you, you might not give the best service to the other 40 tables you'll have after that. Right. And so just yeah, like, and, and in a tip based industry, you know, that really, that is an impact on your bottom line. Exactly. Your bottom line, the, the company's bottom line, you know, getting those return, that return clientele, it's everything. And so I, I went into, you know, my, my program and also what I, what I wanted out of my career was like, how can I help give these emotional tools and, and train, you know, use training as the vehicle to give people what they need? Cause it's basic stuff. And I tell, I say that at the beginning of my workshops and you know, the, 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 the trainings I do like that the actual skills, the actual tools I'm going to give you today are not groundbreaking. They're not, they're nothing. I mean, it's like a breathing technique to like, you know, 
not let an emotional trigger like derail your whole day. It's literally like 12 seconds of, of breath work and that's it. You know, it's basic stuff or like, or like how to properly give an empathy statement to like, to have a difficult conversation, right? To stay in that conversation and, and show someone I'm listening to you and I'm, I'm here, you know, like basic stuff. But the hard part is like the accountability to do it or like even just being told about it in the first place and, and soft skills. I, I like to call them power skills but soft skills aren't really, they're, they're getting some more like, emphasis. And I, I see like, with, with um, performance management and leaders, like seeing some more of the, those, those more like soft skills competencies on like performance management, but like we're still, we have so much to go with giving people these, these tools for how to just communicate and, and, and be with one another at work. Right. And so that was always my, my focus and my passion. And, and that's still very true to this day, but go to market, right? I can't just be like, I'll just help you talk better to each other. I'll help you, you know, emotional intelligence. Like that's so big. And there's, and there's a lot of people who are doing great work in that space, you know? So I, I, I did a lot of work of thinking, you know, what is my value proposition? What is different? What is my unique, you know, service that I can do better or differently than all my competition out there? Because you know, I'm competing in the L&D space, learning and development space. I'm in the diversity inclusion space. I'm in just like the training space, you know. And so my dissertation, I, I built a training program helping that, that the intention of it was to equip male executives with the mindset and the behaviors they would need to be better allies to women at their organization mm. to help advance women in leadership initiatives and even though that, that all aligns with everything I'd previously said, you know, how do we use, develop these behaviors in a way to, you know, be better to one another at work. And, you know, you, you need to have high emotional intelligence to be an ally, to do that level of work. You need to be a good communicator. You know, you're communicating across difference. There's sensitive topics, like all those things are true, but it just really was focused on allyship. Um, obviously at, you know, in the inclusion space, thinking about gender equity, you know, it's a very particular slice of, of diversity, you know, just looking at women, how can we help women? Um, but that really, you know, helped me narrow my niche and, and for, you know, what I'm launching my company on and where I want to focus and, and the unique value I can add is how, how are companies measuring diversity and inclusion, right? Like we know you, you can, I say this, and this is, this, this is, this is working really well in like all the virtual calls I've been having lately but like especially when there's like at least like 20 people or like a good amount of people you have the Brady Bunch you know so the squares on the call and you can say like look at our call right now you can quickly in a second quickly assess what type of diversity we have on this call right now just like you know in a moment like how many men and women how many people of color like what's what what's the breakdown what's going on in, in this in this photo in this snapshot you can't just quickly measure inclusion like that right? You know, it's, it's how we treat each other. And so that, so because, but we care so much about diversity and inclusion, we added it to the definition, but like, how are people operationalizing and defining it? And they're just. Well, I think this is a good time too. I, I know you and I had a little pre-call about this. Uh, and I think you, you summed it up really well, but I, I think it'd be good to define the terms because yeah. I mean, I've been, I'm not in HR, but I've been operating around the mm -hmm. HR circles for 11 years now. And and diversity and inclusion is a topic that comes up all the time. And it's one that I, I still think most people really don't understand. And so how do you define the terms and like, how should people be thinking about this in their own heads and in their own lives and in their own companies? 
Absolutely. So the way the way I see it is, is diversity is how we see each other. And inclusion is how we treat each other. So and let me let me use this as let me use myself as an example. So we're on this video, you know, we're recording this on video right now. So we see each other and you see me and I, I am a woman and um, I, I, I look maybe younger than some of my peers, right? And, but I also, you know, I have this, this doctor in front of my name. So, and so just, just those three things alone, you're, you're anyone that I meet immediately, they, they have these bits of information. They see me a certain way and then assumptions start spinning, right? So, um, well, I'm a, I'm a woman, I'm a younger woman, am, am I a mother, you know, like, am I married, you know, like, um, and, because I have this degree, am I actually older? Am I challenging age assumptions? You know, like, am I inexperienced because I look younger? Like, there's all these just like assumptions just flying, and that's because that's how yeah. our brains work, right? We're trying and to slot everybody into some recognizable box within exactly. our head, right? Yeah. And, and, it, and it helps us, right? These these biases, these 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 quick judgments we make allow us to take in the exorbitant amount of information we are inundated with in every given moment. I think I've seen stats on like, like at any moment with all of our senses, we are, we're taking in like a 10 million bits of information. You know, if you think about like looking at even just the wall behind me, you could just, you can use 20 words to describe just the colors on the wall behind, you know, so it's like, it makes sense. So how do we quickly just not get in like analysis paralysis and just make sense of the world, be able to proceed we need to have these this ability to quickly make sense of things. So like this is a good tool, a good skill we've developed, you know, and it's it's automatic, it's implicit. But but what gets us wrong, what what goes awry is whenever those judgments, those assumptions then um, impede on someone's potential or your ability to, to um, give give everyone fair opportunity, a fair chance, right? So that's, and then that leads into the behaviors part, right? So like the diversity is, is what we see, it's how we see each other, it's how we put each other in group out groups and what type of um, detrimental effect that could have, right? On certain groups of individuals and a lot of diversity inclusion is trying to create that, that equity that, you know, to, you know, fix that imbalance, right? inclusion though so we knew like in the diversity space like it started with just diversity workplace diversity and knowing okay things are awry here when you look at the the local population demographics right we have we have 40 percent um african-american community in in this geographic region i'm just making up these numbers but like but we look at our workforce and it's like 10 percent, and then you look at leaders it's like 0.2 percent so like something's awry here and so let's fix let's focus on fixing the diversity when you focus on the diversity part alone, you miss you miss like what makes diversity work, like why we're valuing it in the first place, which is you know being able to, as I said, like give people the space and opportunity to get the most out of their potential, and that requires so much more than just having people there. You need you need the right culture, you need the right opportunities, you need the right space, make people feel welcome. You know, even if they are the only person there, right? They need like to keep them around and get more people there, like you need to create that culture. And so that's where the inclusion part came in. But with the definition, and this is such a, it's such a great, great question is like, well, how do we define what this inclusion thing is? And like the big, the big adage, I think Verna, oh, her name's escaping me. I think she used to do diversity inclusion at Netflix. And she says this, she has this quote, it's diversity is being invited to the party or inclusion is being asked to dance, right? Um, which I think I like that. 
yeah, it, it helps explain it for sure. But how do you then operationalize that, right? How do you then actually, okay, so I'm, I'm an HR practitioner, I'm, I'm, I'm DNI, and that's like my, my full focus at this company, right? And I'm going to do diversity and inclusion. So like, let's invite people to the, to the party and then ask them to dance. Like, what does that mean in actual like KPIs or business terms or anything? Like, how, how do we then operationalize that beautiful metaphor? And so with the work I've done and especially the allyship work I've done and really trying to think, com coming at it from an L&D learning development perspective. So really getting it down to those, those behaviors, like what do allies do to actually help in the, in the case of the, the men as allies program, but what do these allies do to actually help women at work? So what, like, what behaviors can, can help solve these problems and these barriers that are existing, you know, between men and women at work. And that's the approach I'm taking with inclusion and really trying to empower companies to think about inclusion in terms of action, in terms of behaviors. So what can leaders do? What can peers, individuals do? What can majority group members do, right? And that's a big piece of diversity and inclusion too. A lot of majority group members feel left out, you know, and, and I'd love your perspective on this, quite honestly, right? As a white male, like a, a lot of white men don't see themselves in DNI and they see an email come out or a comp come out and it's like, oh, diversity and inclusion, that doesn't apply to me. You know, and, and, it, and it's valid. I think that's a, it's a, the way it's positioned in a lot of cases. I think that's valid, but I'm curious to hear your perspective on that, if that's okay for me to ask. Yeah, no, that's fine. I, uh, I'm laughing here uh, because I knew, I knew at some point we were, we were sailing down a pretty calm river and the rapids were coming up. And I, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll admit, like, I was a little nervous getting into this conversation because, you know, I'm a straight white male in my mid to late thirties. Uh, you know, I've, a have came from an affluent background. I, you know, I have a pretty cookie cutter sort of like, you know, on TV, which you'd see lifestyle mm -hmm. and, and yeah, it does often feel like having any opinion at all makes me a target to be a, like, I just, I just shouldn't be a part of the conversation. And I feel like I see that happening a lot of the time. And so, I, I mean, I have a lot of questions and I want to get into this. And one of the reasons yeah. I really wanted to have you on here is, is I want to explore it. And, and I'll just preface any question I ask or anything I say with, you know, I'm trying to figure this stuff out too. And, you know, we're all trying to evolve. And, you know, I'll, I, I try to approach it all the time, just authentically and with everybody's best interest in mind. Uh, but I don't know that we get to have this type of conversation where you might put your foot, you know, put your foot in your mouth a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And so I will, I'm a little nervous, but we'll jump into it. We'll, you know, we'll do it. I, I do think there is an element, a strong element of pushback from people who look like me that, that no, we just, we don't, we're not involved in those groups. And whenever you see those groups being put together, often there's no, no representation of somebody that looks like me, which is like, you know, you could make the counter argument, which is like, well, hey, you know, that's fine. Now you know what it feels like, which is like, okay, fair. But now I also can't help you. Like, and if you want to have a seat at the table and you want to, you want us all to be treated equal, we all need to be treated equal. And we need to figure out how to do that together. I think there's an element of that too, right now going around talking about masculinity and how we bring up young women and young men. And I think, you know, there's, 
if we want to have a better society for men and women, we need to be talking to men and women. So I just, like I, I've, we have a, a chief diversity and inclusion officer and, and I was talking to her after we kind of launched that initiative. And I just said, you know, the, the only thing I want to see is that it's inclusive for everybody yes. so that yeah. we all feel good. Cause I, I mean, I, I do believe firmly, like this is a, a belief of mine that everybody should have the ability to live their best life, be their true self and realize whatever potential they have. Right. So long as they're not hurting somebody it's, else. That's the caveat. That's yeah. the caveat. And that's an important caveat. Yeah. yeah I don't get absolutely. to do whatever I want. Mm -hmm. If and, you know, burn somebody's house down. Yeah. yeah. But detriment. yeah. And I, and I think we're trying to figure out as a society right now, at least it seems to me like we're trying to figure out where those lines are. Right. Yeah. And, and it's like, oh, well, you know, the, the, the whole thing about transgender people using bathrooms, like there are people who feel like that potentially hurts some people. And so like, we're trying to figure out where that line is. And, yeah. and so I think it's just, it's a little bit messy now as we're, we're getting into all of those yeah. conversations. Oh, so many things. Okay, so just to, to to link to finish what we were saying before and to transition nicely into this. So you asked me to define. So diversity is how we see each other. Inclusion is how we treat each other. And allyship is a way to accelerate inclusion at organizations because it intentionally and strategically brings in majority group members. Says, hey you need to be a part of this. You know, I have an example of, of one of my recent engagements. You know, I was working with a tech group at a large corporation and they were doing a lot of new programming for like women in tech, right? Um, and they had a DNI element, they had a tech element and, and, and in the, the first few women in tech events they had, they're like, okay, it was great speakers, great conversation, but like, it'd be so great to have some of our male colleagues there and not to say, Hey, you're the problem. You need to hear this to listen to it. But like, Hey, we're coming up with solutions of how to overcome these challenges. And you, you're a part of that solution. So, so come on and join us and help us. Right. And so whenever I came in, I knew this background talking to my, my stakeholders there. And I, and so we very intentionally marketed the event as you know it was, it was emotional intelligence like how to be more emotionally intelligent in tech you know and just like the very bottom of the calm like sponsored by yeah. tech or whatever you know it was very yeah. like and and we and men were there and and there i think there were maybe six or eight but like six or eight more than there were you know the last few sessions and i i got the opportunity to chat with them afterwards and ask them like i, I thank them for coming ask them why, why did you join and they're like you know this is the first time i got one of those emails and it, and I felt like, Oh, I'm included in this. I'm included in this. Yeah. And they, and they're like, and we're glad we were here. And like, and it was so great to have the gender dynamic and the because we were talking about, you know, yeah, we we're talking about emotional intelligence, but we, but we did get into inclusion, right? We did get into to leadership and, and gender dynamics, you know, cause that's real, especially in, in an industry like tech. Right. And so, and to yeah. have both perspectives there, and I, what my hope is, you know, that those conversations continue well after I leave, because that's really what it comes down to is, is getting people to not only pulling them in and giving them some, some tools to have those conversations, but to then like those conversations actually happen, like the work actually happens, you know? So yes, come join us as our ally and like, let's do this work together. Um, so like really using this ally 
allyship approach to, to access, you know, maybe in some cases 70, 80, 90 percent of the organization that doesn't see themselves in these initiatives and these, these diversity inclusion initiatives, like companies are really starting to, to you know, invest and, and put more resources in that. You know, some of the best in class companies have whole like um, diversity inclusion, like legs interwoven throughout the business right and so you have like the way you have like h like hr business partners you have like h you have dni business partners right and so there's real money real like outcomes like being like resources being dedicated to this work and yet it's it's only engaging that one small percentage of the workforce you know like how do we yeah. get everyone involved and, and that's really where that's where the magic happens right and, and yeah that, that's i'm trying to take I, I have a bunch of questions for you to get please, into this I, I really want to get into inclusion but before we do that i want to get in i just have a couple questions about diversity and maybe you can kind of rip through these pretty quickly but like what are we shooting for with diversity because there's like in tech for example you hear well we need we need a lot more women in tech and then you hear other people who might come back and say, well, not as many women like tech careers as men do. And I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying I've heard those arguments on both sides. Like, wh what are we shooting for when it comes to diversity? And how do you think about some of those different things where either there's maybe there's some bias that one gender or another doesn't like those types of jobs or that there's maybe some like physical requirements or something put in place that maybe limits somebody, you know, one group of people being involved. Yeah. Okay. So um, at the broad level, you know, the research and the business case for diversity is like very clear. There's so much data, like teams that are heterogeneous outperform teams that are homogenous. Like that's just like science fact like so there's there's that and then but getting at like what should companies be shooting for right that i always go to what's the what's the demographic like what's the pool right what's the representation of the pool and how can we get that that candidate pool or that local you know geographic demographic how can we get that to be representative of what our company looks like because you know if you're in certain parts of the of the us or the world you know like maybe there isn't much ethnic diversity or there isn't much religious diversity or whatever the level of diversity, right? But what is like, what's, what's men and women? That's why a lot of companies, when they are trying to figure out where to start, they do start with gender because across the entire globe, you should expect around 50, 50, right? Like that's just biology helped us out there to keep those metrics pretty simple. Right. So um, it's a good place to start, right. Is, is, is gender, you know, cause it's once, once you start getting those metrics, you start figuring out what groups would be, what's some low hanging fruit. Like what, where should we start? Cause you can't, you can't just do everything at once. So if you have the starting point, I always like companies I see start with gender, you know, how can we get, and not just representation of workforce when it comes to gender, but, but across leadership levels, looking at it by the different divisions, by the different functions, by the teams, and then all the way up through the entire organization up to the C-suite and looking at board. So how can we get those numbers to be representative by having more gender balance? When it seems, it seems to me, like when you say that, so what I, where my head goes is like, you start with the pool of the pool that you have. And so while maybe, you know, while men and women are 50, 50, maybe the candidate pool that you're seeing only has 10% women in it. So then you have to ask why. Yeah. And then, but then, so I'm just thinking through this in my head. So then it's like, okay, well, if you look around your company and you don't have 
female representation, that's your first problem. And you got to solve that problem. And then the next problem is, why is there a lack of representation in the pool? And how do we address that problem? And is it because they're just not interested? And hey, that's great, go live your best life somewhere else? Or is it because there are barriers that you're putting in place to entry? Is that is that yeah. and, fair? And yes, completely fair. And I think it's way more likely it's the latter. It's way more likely there's barriers to entry or there's something broken, you know, this the concept of like the leaky pipeline, right? Like this this idea that we start out with representation, but throughout the way the process is built, that pipeline by the end, you're losing, it's leaking, it's leaking out certain groups because because of these barriers and systemic, you know, disadvantage disadvantages that people face, right? So um, I think people are very quick to go to the, oh, well, they're just not interested or like, they, or those, I mean, there was the, the, um, the explosive Google memo, right? Yeah. Making all those claims about, well, me, well, men are more, men are just better, you know, engineers and women don't have the, you know, the same biological inc- like tendencies to be better at this line of work. And not only was some of those claims just not proven, but also like, that's, that's another thing that those general over like those over generalizations those over generalizations of men are like this women are like that people from different ethnic groups are like this or that that's a huge objective of diversity inclusion is to start eradicating those because when we have those over generalizations then then we then judge people saying oh you're in that group that group is like this so you're not like this and it robs people of their ability to be their unique best selves it robs people the ability to create their own brand create their own career path create their own own journey based on what genuinely are their passions what generally they are good at what they do care about because oh well you're in this group and this group is like that so you're just so you wouldn't be interested and like so i think that's another like core part of diversity inclusion is trying to like eradicate a lot of those assumptions and biases because yeah it hurts it hurts at the individual level and then it hurts at the systemic level whenever it's like oh well people just aren't applying and so it's not our fault well then well why aren't they applying and the best companies are the ones out there doing that community work finding out the answer to those questions and engaging certain communities in a really intentional and strategic way to get them to start applying. And I, I see it in Pittsburgh. I see it, it's, I see it, I see it, um, like PNC Bank, they have a lot of like, great, they do a lot of great work in that space. They actually engage the communities and, and, and they use it as a business strategy and it works, yeah. right? It works. Yeah. We have to, yeah. Cultivating talent. Mm-hmm. So I, um, I want to dance around that landmine of the, uh, the Google memo for a second. Okay. Because this is this is one that I've wrestled with back and forth on uh, on and kind of on both sides. So he wrote that I I, had li- I did listen to an interview with him and I've read a decent chunk of the memo. And while some of his claims in there, to your point, you know, are portraying bad cycles that we've been through and biases and, and those types of things, but part of me sees him trying to engage in a conversation to say like, well, Hey, do we really need this much diversity or, or should we not even be shooting for that because there's these other systems in play and rather than have a conversation that said, Oh, that's an interesting perspective. Let us, you know, let's talk about it and maybe explain why you're wrong. 
that, you know, a firestorm came down and he wound up getting, getting fired. And I'm not saying that he shouldn't have gotten fired. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to play either side, but I just, this is where me caveating all of this, right? You can tell I'm a little nervous tiptoeing around this one, but, but like what, how should we be thinking about this stuff as organizations? Because you get somebody like that. There are a lot of people who think like that, right? Who have these impressions in their head that think, oh, well, yeah, but of course we don't because fill in the blank reason women don't want this job or fill in the blank reason African-Americans aren't choosing to do this. They're going to choose to do something else. And maybe that's right or maybe that's wrong. But like, if we're going to combat those biases, we need to be doing it. I would think we need to be doing it in some sort of conversational fashion yes. versus yes. like a, a canceling fashion. And so how, how do you think about that and how, how to create a discourse with this stuff? Everything I do with my allyship work is about building the discourse. So I'm actually, I've been working with Udemy for the last, I guess, six months now or so building out a virtual course all about allyship. And in the design phase, we did a lot of thinking around, okay, who is this for, right? Obviously it's for people who want to be allies, but I define allyship as this like dyadic one-on-one relationship between an ally and the partner, right? The same way mentorship is a relationship between the mentor and the protege. Like you need to have that relationship piece. And so for this course, you know, we landed on, okay, I'm going to be talking, I'm going to be assuming, even though I know it's going to be one person most likely on the other side of that screen, it, I, I'm assuming that there's two people there, right? And so, so I'm trying to talk equally to the ally and the partner throughout the course to give them both what they need, but also to in, increase the likelihood that they go and do this work together and have that conversation and do that work in in alliance, right? Like ally, alliance. Yeah. Um, but the point I wanted to make was, it's a 21, they're, they're like mini lectures, they're like five to seven minutes each. So, and there's 21 lectures. And I don't get to the actual behaviors of like what allies do and what like what to do in the wild as, as allies until like lecture 19 or something ridiculous. The whole, and, I, and I, I'm very transparent with this. I'm like, okay, we're at lecture 19. We're finally getting around to what allies do. Like, what's up? You know, why did I wait this long? I'm like, because everything up to this point should be building that relationship, having that conversation, like if you want to be an ally and, and help, you know, let's just keep it some women at work, right? You're a man, you want to help women at work. You can't just go out and start doing that work. Like what are the unique challenges that women at your company face? Like what would, like if you, if you have want to help a particular woman in, in mind, do you actually know what career path that she wants for herself? Do you know what goals, you know, you're just going to you know, volunteer her name at some like special task force, get her visibility. That's great. But does she want to be on that task force? Does she want that visibility? You know? So like, that conversation, that relationship you're building. That empathy, answers. right? I mean, it's the it's empathy empath- building. Yeah. It's empathy, it's awareness, right? So much of like people don't have conversations. And I think a lot of the nervousness and a lot of the, okay, like I don't want to put my foot in my mouth. It's because we don't fully understand what would be offensive to someone. Yeah. What, what would be crossing the line? So I'm just not even going to go there. I forget the line. I'm going to avoid the whole thing with a 10 foot pole because I don't want to cross it. Well, the more you understand someone's perspective, the less likely you are to to put your foot in your mouth. The thing is there's going to be collateral damage. And this is why resilience, resiliency is so important and transparency and, and, and humility of, of saying up front, like I'm going to stumble. I'm going to say the wrong thing using consent. Is this okay? Can I ask you this? Be okay if the answer is no, but, but through that work and through that, that stumbling and that, that co stumbling together, 
you get that level of awareness that you would never have before to then be able to, whenever you do go into action, to make, to know that you're doing the right work, right? Because it's risky. You're risking being interpreted as like, oh, now like you're some social justice warrior, you know, now, oh, now you're like Mr. PC, okay, can't joke around with you anyway. You, you risk that there's, there's risk associated with being an ally, right? Sure. So if you're going to take that risk, you better make sure what you're risking it for is well worth it. And so that relationship building is everything. The other thing you're risking too is backlash from the people that you're trying to help and, yeah. and, and not to put blame or anything, but I've seen scenarios where somebody from a position of privilege or power starts to preach or, or try to come to the support of somebody else. And they say, oh, well, we don't need you riding in to save the day, you know, you need to get out of here and just let this happen among this community. Or, you know, there's, there's sort of that backlash of like, I, I don't know what the term is. Maybe it's white knight, which fits with white. You know, like white, I've seen white savior. Yeah, white savior. Yeah. White savior. I think that's what it is. You know, like I've yeah. Seen and it's like, I mean, like I said before, I want everybody to be able to live their best life and feel totally happy and comfortable and realize their dreams. But like, how do like, I, I don't know how to help people do that in a way that doesn't cross some of those boundaries too. So I think there's, that creates even more hesitancy to go out and become an ally because, you know, to me, like, I, I wonder, and I've had this thought too, like ally is, is it just being in the room and then sitting quietly or is it being in the room and participating in some way? Yeah. I mean, I think that that also comes down to the emotional intelligence of like knowing when it's time to listen and also when it's time to speak up. And, 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 it, and that's why this work is so hard because people want black and white and not in a race way, but in just like a binary, you know, yes. way. Yes. Yes or no, on or off, one or zero. On or off, this is right or wrong, here's the line. And, and when it comes down to diversity and inclusion, that line is always going to depend on the the other person on the other side of that line. Like we all have our own, um, we all are entitled to our own boundaries and what, you know, what is right or wrong for how we're being treated. Right. And so that gets frustrating to people because like, I just want to know the right way to treat people. I want to know the right thing to do. I want to know when to, when to speak up or listen or whatever, you know, it's like, well, it's all, it just all depends on that context and that, relationship or that moment and that's why and then people are like well forget it they just throw up their hands because it's like it takes that extra you know assessment um the you know knowing that the same rules don't apply to the same scenario but a rule of thumb after saying all that one one thing I, i've been learning there are no rules own, but if you want to there are no rules but if if something that that i've been experimenting with in my own allyship journey right because i've i've came at allyship initially at from the from the partner perspective right the person being served by the ally I'm men as allies I'm a woman I've had a lot of phenomenal male allies in my life I can speak to the success of those types of relationships and how the men the male bosses and mentors and advisors I've had have helped me propel my career right and so like I can speak to that what I've spent the last couple of years working on though is like what's my role as an ally, especially as a white person in America, you know, and how and how what's my journey been in that regard. And um, oh my gosh, I totally just lost my train of thought. 
I had a point. Oh, the rule of thumb. Okay, so, oh, the listen. Okay, so when it comes to when to listen and when to speak up. So as a white ally, what I've been trying on to try to figure out the answer to that question is if the person speaking at the moment is a person of color, then it's my turn to listen. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna try extra hard to be the listener because I have so much more to gain from learning more about their perspective as an ally than, than me sharing mine, right? Like, so that's, a li that's when I err on the listening side. And then when I'm with my white peers and I hear something that's off or there's an opportunity to challenge someone's assumptions or bias or bring up a counter argument, you know, then that's, that's where I err on the side of speaking up, right? Because that's my, that's more of my place when I, and that's also where allyship really, you know, accelerates that inclusion I was talking about before is if when we're in a place with fellow in-group members, right? And we have the opportunity to challenge things that maybe we used to let slide. That's where we can really make substantial change that our out-group colleagues or out-group people can't do because, because they're not in that in-group, right? They're not in so, the room when those conversations are happening. Or they, those conversations wouldn't be happening in front of them. They just wouldn't be because, because people, we're not stupid. <laughs> people aren't dumb. <laughs> well, yeah, well I don't know. Yeah, I guess that's sweeping. <laughs> um, that was the point I was trying to make. <laughs> no, that's great. <laughs> Pivoting into inclusion a little bit. Yes. Uh, I was thinking about this, you know, we, we're in a very uh, tough week when it comes to racial, uh, I guess, not relations, but just racial inclusion in America right now. There have been several very high profile incidents um, over the last, even just the last, I think, six, five days. Yeah. Um, but in particular, I would. I saw an interview with Christian Cooper, who was the gentleman who was bird watching in Central Park and asked a woman to put her dog on a leash mm -hmm. and she didn't want to and they got into it and she wound up mm -hmm. calling the police on him and had some not nice things to say. And I, I heard an interview with him afterwards and the person asked, you know, do you think she's a racist? She said she's not a racist. Do you think she's a racist? And he said, I don't know if she's a racist, but what she did was a racist act. Mm -hmm. And she'll have to reconcile that in her own head and how she feels about that. Mm -hmm. And it, it makes me think of uh, the term NIMBY, not in my backyard. Mm. And it's like, yeah, I'm good with, I'm good with the power plant. I just don't want it in my backyard. Mm. And I feel like there's when it comes to inclusion, it's really easy for people to say, yeah, like I've said twice already, yeah, I want everybody to live their best life. And then when it comes to, okay, well now here's this diverse group of people, let's act like it. That's when people's biases then sort of get reared and it's in the person and maybe they have thoughts that come into their head or, or behaviors that they don't even recognize that they're doing. And, that, and that's where some of the great intentions maybe get stalled out. So I'd be curious on your take on like how as individuals do we catch that stuff and push past it yeah. so that we really can be actually thinking and behaving the way that we want to when we're thinking about it, not in the situation. Yeah, absolutely. So I think something really powerful in that 
in that interview with with Christian Cooper was you know he, he separates the action from the person and and I think in this work you know we can't fully separate the two things we have to where everyone's accountable for what they do right but whenever you can make that distinction then you can acknowledge that someone can change and move beyond it right and so I think where a lot of conversations get stalled out when it comes to diversity and inclusion is okay, you're calling me out on something or you're saying I did something that was offensive. Well, I'm a good person. And so I didn't mean it that way. And so we're just like done here, right? Because like, you're, you're saying I'm a bad person. I know I'm not. And, and I can't, like, I get defensive and then we don't move on. And then I, and then I don't learn from that. Right. And so there's this, um, Dolly Chug, she wrote a book. She's a business school professor at NYU. She wrote a book called The Person You Mean to Be. And she talks about this concept of being a good-ish person. And it's essentially like adopting <laughs> a growth mindset to your work yeah. in, in, in getting a broader, like, diverse inclusion mindset, right? Being an ally or just, like, being a better person, you know? And if you acknowledge, okay, I'm a good – I'm, I'm trying my best. I want to be better. I, I, the phrase that you keep sharing, you know, I want the best for everyone. I want every opportunity. Like, I can be that person and still make mistakes. Actually, I'm going to make mistakes. And because I'm doing this work, I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to put my foot in my mouth. I'm going to say the wrong thing. I, I'm, I've definitely done things in my past I probably shouldn't have done, you know, like write, wrote someone off or didn't give someone an opportunity or whatever. But if I can acknowledge I can be both those things, then I can actually have the conversation about the the behavior that I want to eradicate, right? We can actually talk about this and I can work through this and I can change it versus just stopping the conversation altogether. And then we don't have any sort of change because when people see, and there's, there's this great meme going out right now. It's like one of the, the cliche icebergs, right? But it's like, all right, here's, here's systemic racism. Here's the whole iceberg of systemic racism. And here's the tip where it's like, like, you know, just blatant racist comments, like, you know, violence, like all the things that, that we would see and, you know, that, that we think about when we think, okay, racist people do this. Yeah. But then the whole, you know, it's like three fourths of icebergs under the water and that's not having the conversations or letting the racist, racist slur slide or not calling out your peers or um, not in my backyard, right? Like that's where all that's, and that's still part of the problem, right? But like, but we say, oh, I don't do those bad things, right? So all this other stuff doesn't matter because I don't do those bad things. And that's where we get in trouble. And that's where we're never going to make a change if we don't start acknowledging it's the micro behaviors and the day-to-day -day stuff that's keeping the system in place. It's going to allow then those nasty things to continue happening. Yeah. And I love what you said too about uh, the person shutting down when you label them as bad because nobody's the villain in their own story, right? We're all the hero in our own story. We're all, we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt in being a good person a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And so if you just go and say, oh, well, you're a bad person, then suddenly they're like, well, no, I'm not. And now you're not having a productive conversation. Exactly. Yeah. Versus, and that's why, that was where his comments really struck me to say, I don't know what she is, but I know what this act was. Yes. And, and the way that he just like very graciously gave her the benefit of the doubt that she could have just acted poorly. And, you know, now if she, now there's room that what I really thought was he gave her room to acknowledge it 
improve on it and then not behave that way again yeah. to, to grow. And that, yeah. that was really what stood out for me. And I think about that. I mean, that was obviously out in central park, but I think you think about that in the workplace too, like to be able to not label somebody, but label an action. And, you know, you hear people all the time who maybe like a business leader will say something and then somebody will be like, Hey, you probably don't want to say that. Like, well, no, but I, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm not a bad person. I'm not a bigot. I'm not sexist. I'm not whatever. And it's like, well, no, you're not. But that comment can be construed as that thing. So I, that's kind of an interesting pivot too to another charged term I wanted to pick your brain about. And this, I'm going to show my ignorance here as we get into this topic, but microaggressions. Yes. I want to get your take on microaggressions and yes. just as a term and what you think. Absolutely. So microaggressions are these, you know, as you can hear from the the term, these tiny, you know, often unconscious or implicit things that we do that still cause damage, you know, to others. And so a, a, an example is um, telling an African-American colleague how articulate they are because the, and you, you might think, and, and you're generally trying to give a compliment, right? But like, but would you call, would you say the same thing to a white colleague? And it's, it's, it has that like underlying assumption that, oh, well, are black people not supposed to be articulate, you know? And, and then it makes that person question, you know, am I, am I being tokenized right now? Or like, am I, you know, like, am I just only seen as good as, as how my race is perceived? You know, it, it, it causes, and over time, because they're, they're micro, right? I like to use the analogy of death by a thousand paper cuts, right? But over time, the, de- the, the, the compounded effect of these is that people don't value me here. People don't listen to me here. My work is not, my, I, I'm not doing my best work here. I'd be better off being somewhere else, you know? And so it's, it's their microaggression. So it's never like the big event that would get the, get HR involved or get someone a discrimination case against them. Or like, you know, these, these big things. When we think about workplace discrimination, we think about these big, these big events, whereas microaggression is just the day to day interact. How big should we be thinking about these? And you just used a term about, uh, shoot, you just said it and I blanked on the term, but um, you know, like, should we be reporting these to HR or not? And and that's where I think, that's where like I get sort of confused on how we should be thinking about microaggressions and then having the conversation about it, because it's really easy to scoff them off as like, oh, this person's being sensitive. Yeah. And um like I heard one woman at a conference talk about how she was in a meeting and she was the only woman and they took a bathroom break and she was the only one who went to the ladies room. Everybody went to the men's room. She could hear them through the door that there was like a lot of talking going on in the bathroom. And when they came out, saw her, they stopped talking. And she felt like that was a microaggression. And I, to me, I was thinking like, Oh, that might, I don't know. Maybe that's a little too sensitive. Right. Um, Maybe they just saw her and sort of reset and then they were going to carry on whatever conversation they were. And I I just, I struggle with how to be thinking about these in a productive way. Yeah. And I think that's a great question. Um, I think this relates to PC culture and trigger warnings and like all of that right now. And I think cancel culture and exactly. I, I think it's all related. And I think it's us stumbling around trying to figure out what is socially acceptable now because 
you know, and, and it's a silly example, but like the show Friends, like I used to, I love Friends. Like it's like, it's like my, my background show that I have on for like just something familiar. And, but the more I watch it, especially, you know, the fact it's 2020 now, like it's becoming an older show, an old show, you know, there's, there's so much like um, homophobia, sexism, like there's like some like nasty stuff that was funny at the time. It's not funny anymore. And so like, we're all like what's happening with like this PC microaggression trigger warning culture is like, it's how we're trying to figure out where this new line is. Cause the old line doesn't work anymore. So I think that's first off. And so that's why like, there isn't a good, once again, no rule of thumb. And there, like, like, there's not like, there's a list of having like the ultimate list of what's a microaggression and what's not doesn't make sense because you're right. In some cases, like, people coming out of a restroom and stop talking like that could have been interpreted as nothing at all. And everyone just gone about with their day, you know, but at that moment, because that happened, that woman had a question, were they talking about me? You know, am I at a disadvantage? Cause I couldn't be having that conversation in that room with them, you know? And so I think it once again, goes back to, are we creating a workplace culture where that conversation could then happen? Imagine they then went back to the room and she goes, Hey guys, what were you talking about? did I miss anything in the bathroom? You know, like, you know, and just to have that psychological safety where those questions could then be asked and we could get back to transparency. So I don't have to sit there thinking to myself, is this a moment where I'm being disadvantaged because I'm a woman? And like, that's what microaggressions really are. They're, they're only a microaggression if they hurt the person, the target of it, right? Like if that person isn't affected, if they're not getting a paper cut, right. To, to lead to this eventual demise, like then it's not a microaggression. And that's, and that's not a, a satisfactory answer I feel to most people. It's like, well, I want to know what to do. Oh, well, you have to find out by having a conversation if that's offensive to someone or not. And yeah. it goes the other way around too, O'Brien. This is what I'm really trying to empower um, people to do with this allyship work that I'm doing is like the partner, the, the, the target, the person like at the bud of that microaggression, like they also need to be forthcoming. Like, hey, like what's up? Like, like I... I don't want to have to worry, like, am I being left out right now? Or, or were y'all were y'all talking about me? You know, and like, and giving people the tools to have that conversation so they're not being penalized for, for bringing stuff like that up. So like, I think it goes both ways. Like power dynamics are huge in this element. And like people, like there is research that shows that those who really advocate for diversity inclusion, if they are coming from a diverse group, if they're a member of a diverse group, they're viewed more negatively than if it was a white male who's the chief DNI officer, right? Because like he's not shown to be self-benefiting from that effort, right? So there, there's a lot of power dynamics here, and I'm, and I want to acknowledge that, and that's why allyship is so important, and getting majority group members involved, especially at higher leadership levels, is so important. But I want to help create workplaces where people can have the conversation in the first place to say, hey, like. I don't know what's going on with, with what you said there or what happened there. Can we just talk about that, you know, and just, and then having the conversation. So it's not having that detrimental effect over time. Yeah. I mean, it's funny how many times conversations like this, whether it's diversity and inclusion or leadership or anything else just comes down to open conversation, open communication. It really does. It really and, does. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I, th I was thinking about just even this with my wife and you know, I might say something and she goes, do you have any idea how that just came off? I'm like, well, I mean, that was a joke. Like I was very clearly joking. She's like, well, it wasn't that clear to me. And 
you know, and it's taken, it's taken me a while to realize like, Oh, my, my sense of humor and my tone don't always land the way that I want them to. And so, you know, she and I now are better at communicating that back and forth. And it just takes that investment in the relationship to be having that open dialogue and me not to just shut down and say, uh, we are just being too sensitive, which, you know, I will fully admit that's how I responded the first few times. Um, but there's been enough time there where I've, you know, I've been able to see it and, and improve on that. Not to say that I'm perfect. I still, you know, I still bugger all the time, but, um, <laughs> but that's, that stuff. You need that investment in the work relationships too, yeah. to give people benefit of the doubt. And then for the allies to be able to step in, but also for the people who feel offended to be able to voice that because especially with microaggressions, they, they're micro, right? So, Nobody is going to know unless you voice it yeah. and to be able to feel safe enough to voice it. I think that's probably on the allies to the make the, and the leaders to make the environment safe enough that people can voice that stuff. That's it. You just explain diversity and inclusion. You're an expert now, Brian. There you go. You just, you just explained the whole thing. I love it. That's, I don't know. I, I blacked <laughs> out. What just happened? I love it. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think about this stuff and, and try to wrestle my own stuff. And I know that I'm as much of a work in progress as anybody else, but you know, you do, you do have to think about this stuff. Another thing that I think about quite a bit, and I thought about it when you very, very first started talking is I, I just have this belief that we're not equipped to live in this society naturally. Like there's just too many people, there's too much going on. There's too many dynamics there's money on the line, which I mean, like money is something we created, right? Like money doesn't exist in the world. We, it only has value because we say it does. So it's like, it's just like, we're not meant naturally to be born and grow up into this society and thrive in it. Like you have to learn those skills somewhere. And I, I think we're just now realizing that like, oh, we need to train everybody. You know, it's not, this isn't something that just bad people need to learn, or it's just something that you know, people from a certain class need to learn, like everybody needs to learn the interpersonal skills. And some people get that from their parents or they get that from their environment or school or whatever. And a lot of people don't, and everybody has deficiencies somewhere. And so that I, that's why I'm always interested in these conversations, just because I think it's so important to be educating everybody on this stuff so that they just have a broader perspective and can be better and communicate better. That's I'll step down from my soapbox, but no, I love it. You know, and like, my, my tagline for my company, but also just my mission as an organizational psychologist is improving the human experience at work. And if there, if I took it one level below that, it would be giving people the tools to take better care of themselves and each other. Right. And then below that is like, oh, that's where the inclusion piece comes in. Right. And so that, that really what it comes down to is like, what can we be doing and, and how can organizations help? Because we know that this, this leads to workplace outcomes we care about, like engagement. We don't just measure it for kicks. Engagement leads to productivity, right? Like it's, it's, it's all, you know, it all goes back to the bottom line, but what tools can we be giving our employees at this very humanistic level even? Because we need that just as much as learning how to run our software properly or, you know, the company's values or the leadership training. Like we also need just like, you know, human 101. We don't get that anywhere. And you're right. I think what we're seeing with self-care, like messaging, more of a destigmatization of mental health, especially mental health at work, 
um, I think we're we're moving into that space, and I think I'm excited to be a part of it. Quite honestly. Yeah, I mean, I I help companies build their total rewards programs. Like that's that's what I do in my day job, and the level of conversation that we're having around mental well-being and mental health right now is night and day exponentially more than it used to be. I mean, we're doing webinars, we're edu- we have vendors coming in talking about it. We are talking about it with all of our clients. It's a it's one of the top 4 trends that we're talking about with all of our clients this year, things that they should be doing. Um so it it is getting on the radar right now. I mean, it it is sweeping into our culture in a way that I don't think it ever has before. So I know we're kind of near the end of time and I have I have one more question, but there's one more that I want to sneak in around that, which is how do you think about victimhood in these scenarios? And how do you think about giving people the skills to take control of their own experience? Victimhood in the context of mental health? Well, I have seen, you know, you see people who have really terrible things happen to them. Mm-hmm. and yet are able to take on such a positive perspective on those experiences and move on and really thrive in their lives in some ways. And you see other people who go through those experiences and they just, they have, you know, mental illness, they really struggle emotionally. Um, and it's, it seems to me like there's something going on with how we process this and maybe that there are some tools that we can all use to have better perspective on the things that are happening to us. And so I'm curious, you know, in diversity and inclusion within your space, you know, are there things or are there techniques or are there, are there really any advice? Is there, is there any advice that you have and how people can, while, while the allies are building this up and while the leadership is building a a better psychologically safe environment and all that good stuff, like how can, people who are feeling like they're being treated unfairly, how can they thrive in their own lives in that setting? Yeah, absolutely. So I can only, I can only really, really speak to my own experience and, and being in the, dis, the disadvantaged role as, as a woman. Right. And so some things that I've done in my own life and that I encourage others to do, and, and I feel like I broke a record with this, with this recording, but, you know, making those connections across differences, intentionally pulling in others to be your ally, um, to then once you get opportunities to like crush it and kill it and like, like not only jump at opportunities that are given to you, but then like be the best at it. And that, and it sucks, right? It sucks that someone who is already at a disadvantage needs to work twice as hard to show their worth. And and this is where exactly what you're talking about, the allies and the leaders and trying to break that those perceptions at that structural level is so important, right? We shouldn't have to work twice as hard to get the same credit as someone who would just do the job. Um, and then building resilience, you know, like getting your, your leaning on your networks, leaning on like, you know, even though I'm all about allyship and connecting across difference, like my fellow women and my, 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 my tribe, you know, like that helps a ton too, like getting that support. Um, and also like looking at life from like a holistic perspective too, you know, like making sure that you're filling up all of your buckets, not just your work bucket, you're not just 
you know, like making sure all your cups are full and you're taking care of, you know, yourself as a whole person. I think total rewards fits in really nicely with that. Like it's not just the comp, right? It's, it's what's the whole package and what's look, knowing like what you need in your own life and getting those needs met. Um, because, and, and, and just owning, like I, I, the victimhood conversation is tricky because like those, those, that's what we should be listening. Those, those are the voices we should be listening to right now. And it bums me out. And I think about this flipping it on like a white, a, a race perspective. And it bums me out that a lot of like, especially in Pittsburgh, people in the black community are still having such a hard time expressing what they're so valid in expressing because it's like, oh, well, you know, victimhood and your, 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 you're, you're bringing, you're, you're dividing us instead of coming together, but like people are allowed to be victims as well. So it's tricky. Yeah. I, don't no, know I, I like that. There. I feel no, like- <laughs> I, I, I actually really like that. And, and I think you enlightened my thinking a little bit there with that piece at the end, talking about how people who are feeling victimized and who are expressing their victimhood are really just expressing a need to be heard too. Yeah. And then, you know, and then once they're heard, then there becomes a conversation of what do you do with that? And how do you, how do you help grow from those scenarios, from those situations and that kind of thing. And, and if somebody gets stuck in that victimhood after being able to express themselves, then maybe there's some, some more inner work that needs to be done. But for the rest of us who are not, who don't think of ourselves as victims, when we see that, you know, the, the, maybe the best first reaction is just to listen. Exactly. Just allow that person to be heard. So exactly. I know, I think that was a great answer. It helped me anyway. So that was good. good. Yeah. Um, so my last question is one that I just ask everybody at the end. Uh, Cause I think it's interesting to get the perspectives on what is the purpose of business? The purpose of business is there's a few. So at, at the most basic level, it's reallocating resources in some sort of valuable way right so it's that's like the transactions and i i need this i i'll give you that and and we're gonna you know reallocate resources so we we mutually benefit you know but i think there's also this really beautiful component of creation and having the ability to create something that new create something that solves a problem that meets a need and that makes the world a better place because, because that thing exists and because someone, a company created that the world is now better for it. And, and then what needs to happen for that creation to occur. And this is my favorite part, but like getting the right people in the right roles and giving them the right environment, the right culture to make those beautiful creations that are going to make the world a better place. Um, and that's where, you know, improving the human experience at work, valuing our employees, giving the people the tools they need to take care of themselves and each other. That all is for that higher goal of what can we create to make the world a better place and, you know, and, and exchange those resources to keep that going and, and continue creating more things in the future. Very well said. If, uh, if people want to find you, I mean, you do this professionally. So if people need help, you know, you are a resource that they can reach out to. How can people find you, get in touch and uh, talk about maybe doing some of this work? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the best way to get in touch with me is just directly through my website. It's mattinglysolutions.com. Um, and then also um, I mentioned the virtual course. So that just launched and um, I wanted to share with the viewers of this episode a 25% um, a off discount. So if you wanted to just get that course, it's lifetime access and really you know dig into doing allyship work you know, at an individual level. Um, I wanted to make that available to your listeners. And it's also a good you know, preview of the type of work I do with companies as well. So as much as I care about helping individuals you know, adopt inclusive behaviors, be better to one another in the, in the workplace, uh, I know that real change at businesses needs to happen at that organizational level. So how can we then scale that individual work by using learning and development, using measurement, you know, partnering with HR um, to, to make those changes at a systemic level. So I say those are the two best ways. So check out the course and also visit me at mattinglysolutions.com. And I have, I'm on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. So that, that's incredibly generous. And I'm new enough to be doing this that nobody's offered a discount on any of their services yet. How would people go about getting that? Absolutely. So um, I can share a link with you, O'Brien, to okay. associate with the, the notes in this podcast. So Perfect. Um, they would just click on the link and it would it, it redirects you right to Udemy. You get the 25% off and you can just purchase it right there and have that lifetime access. We will make that happen. Well, Love Victoria, it. thank you so much for being on the show. This has uh, been enlightening for me, uh, if nothing else. And, and I imagine that it will be for the people who listen to it as well. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Hey folks, one last thing before you go. If you have a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy this episode, hit that little share button and send it their way. Also, if you like the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss the next one. That's it. Thanks for coming. I'm O'Brien McMahon. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.